0: Hello and welcome to Six Ways from Sunday. Today I'm sitting down with Kevin Koswin, who's a friend that I've been connected with for quite a while, but we have not reconnected in quite some time. And Kevin is just fresh out of the bush where he's been busy filming and producing uh, his most recent season of From the Wild. So, Kevin, welcome to Six Ways from Sunday. First of all,
1: thanks for having me.
0: Well, thank you for uh, for doing this. And like I said, when you're, I know you got a lot on your plate. You're just Uh, fresh out of the bush. uh, You just had a recent epic hunt that I saw a Facebook post about that. I would love for you to share some of those stories with us. But for our listeners who don't know your background, um, the little bit of your background that I'm familiar with anyway, um, I don't know where to start. I mean, you're a filmmaker. You are a foodie. You are a father. You are an Albertan. Like Like so many of us, there are many different ways that we could label you. Um, but you're a human being who I'm fascinated to, to, uh, to have you share some of your story because as I was just saying to you before we started recording here, I view you as a person who is really, um, really up to some big things in the world and who you have curated and created a life for yourself that is full of meaning and full of spiritually enriching activity for yourself and for the people around you. And for people who view your show, so what I think a, a good road into some of that story is to just ask you point blank: When did you first sort of feel the pull of the wild? And maybe that'll lead us into you sharing some of the the backstory of where your show uh, originated from the wild.
1: Uh, honestly, that started uh, as a kid. Uh, everyone would be you know the older generation would be having their afternoon nap and i'd be the kid tearing around outside playing outside all the time so i was that kid and then i also grew up um with a, both sides of my family were hunters i people kind of ask often on like where are you which which part of the rural area of alberta are you from i, I was born and raised in mill woods man like I'm, <laughs> from, I'm from edmonton um and i still live in the city and i have my whole life but I've just been connected to the outdoors through, again, that hunting side of the family. Um, Really ditched it for quite a a number of years once I moved away from home. um, I moved away from home and uh, after having eaten moose my entire life, uh, pork and chicken tasted pretty amazing. And kind of getting on with something else uh, was fun. Uh, And then kind of came back to it. later kind of around age 30 and then that's when i got into pointing cameras at it and filming it and kind of exploring the the wild spaces from the food side and then that's just been a deep dive ever since and really my career has ended up focused on that which kind of wasn't by design that there's lots of my life that was by design um and that specialization in the wild spaces was not the plan
0: got it well i can really relate to that uh, that element of like creating a life that you love and there's so many aspects of it that you look back at and think, well, I didn't really set out to get here as this end goal. It's just kind of like, you know, this fluky thing happened and then collided with this and crossed paths with that person and this opportunity arose and I pounced on it. My life path has been very similar to that too. And I I did not design the career that I'm in now. 12 years ago when it was starting but when you look back in the rearview mirror you can see all the dots align of course you bet um so if if you didn't set out to create this life that you're in now can you give us a little bit of a sense of like just briefly what you were doing and then how did you end up like in like what is your career now essentially
1: um well i was a creative kid i guess i was played a lot of music in a band and did a lot of music recording and production and was debating going to music school or business school and um was advised and or made the choice of advised to or made the choice to go to business school. So I ended up working in finance for 14 years. And uh while my brain understands spreadsheets and I still dearly love them, uh it was the the ty- the opposite of like filling your cup. It was just a draining uh, endeavor that didn't suit me. It's not like I'm fun I just think it's, I'm not built for that. You know, like there's some yeah. stuff that some people shouldn't do for work. And that was just <laughs> something that wasn't for me. Um, and I literally, I remember having these, you know, these <laughs> moments taking a shower in the morning or whatever, when you have some quiet headspace and thinking, really, this is, I'm just going to do this every day for the next 40 years. And, um, I started to get, I had a lot of time on my hands and because I didn't, thrive in that environment, um, I I had buried all of my spare time into learning about food and kind of rebuilding our food system back when the local food movement was being born. So I ended up being a bit of a poster child for that movement uh, and really involved in all kinds of ways uh, from advising city council here about the urban agriculture policy to sitting on boards with Slow Food Edmonton and the Alberta Farmers Market Association and, and all kinds of stuff. So I got really, really, really heavily involved in that space. And eventually started pointing cameras at it just because i again i had this creative bent that i wanted to is i don't know when you're create when you like doing creative stuff you like doing creative stuff and so i was um pointing cameras a bit at it inspired by a project out of minnesota called the perennial plate and then uh and then that was it uh you know fast forward a decade and i've worked with michelin star chefs from around the planet i've worked in every continent i think something like that and uh and really ended up specialized in producing a two series uh, about wild food, um, both kind of the forage, well the forage side, so plants and fungus, and also heavy on the uh, fishing and hunting side, um, but with a very culinary lens. Uh, so that's kind of where I am now, and it's it really is like you mentioned, uh, it's it's just my life. I found a way to I guess make a living in uh, in pointing cameras and documenting me hanging out with my friends, doing fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Sounds like a dream come true. Doesn't it? Yeah. Like, yeah, it for sure is just
1: pinch yourself and laugh about it. Uh, yeah, 100%. Yes. I, so I cool. just try and not talk about it. <laughs> Cause I know that's not a lot of people's lived experiences. Just getting t- like right now. I, we just finished being wrapped and I'm it's still a bit tired, but my, my brain is already planning season 10 and i just i get to decide like which cool adventures do i want to go on this year and with which of my cool friends to to make what kind of food and what kind of drinks do we want to play with and it's just a fun thing and so i'm really 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 lucky i actually found that when i entered in the in the occupation of pointing cameras at things that uh even if it was something mundane uh as a topic i really enjoyed the the gift the task of uh, having to find the beauty in that thing, whatever that was, it could be literally like a plant or a yeah. piece of industrial equipment. I didn't care. It was fun to just find all the, the had to be forced to take time to smell the roses and find all the lovely things that were in the day-to-day. Uh, it's one of the things that you have to do as a camera operator. Uh, and it's, 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 the, that joy doesn't end. You don't get tired of seeing beautiful sunrises or, or watching the stars on a clear night like that doesn't get old so it's just like uh, I don't know yeah still not bored of it still love it and you yeah
0: and you I mean, I'm sure you always will it's a bottomless thing right like for me I feel like the equivalent of that is I love capturing and sharing people's stories so like what we're doing right now really excites me and lights me up and I will never get tired of that because it's not like I'm going to one day arrive at like well I, I just interviewed the last human and right. or the last original story and they're all going to just be the same now. So, you know, might as well cash in like it's just a bottomless pit and it's the same for you. It's like there is no like you hear about chefs who are pushing the limits of culinary creativity or um, bushcraft and and how there's constantly more that you can learn around bushcraft or survival or, you know, crazy weather camping or whatever it might be, uh, saltwater kayaking. I know you, you've explored that learning curve, uh, in then, you know, in then the last year or two, there's, you're never going to just get to a point where you've done it all and there's just nothing more to do. So that's really cool. Um, one of the things that I observe in your work and your, uh, in your creative work is that you seem to be a real, um, to be really fascinated by the the process of learning. So not just the subject itself, but like, and maybe it's just a means to an end, but you seem to be like someone who's self-taught in so many different areas. I remember one of the first conversations I had with you many years ago, you were telling me about how you had crafted your own Apple Press. And I think it was part of like a fruit harvest or fruit rescue Mm. project in Edmonton where people were, who had fruit trees but weren't harvesting their fruit, their fruit could be harvested. And so it was addressing food waste. But for you, it was like, how do I make the most incredible cider? And and so instead of just like taking some regular old apple juice, like most of us would do, you thought like, okay, no, it's worth my time to like research and design and construct my own apple press. Like that's, it's a whole level, like above and beyond normal.
1: Yeah, fair. And I also took the time when I had little babies at home to fly to Normandy for a week or 10 days to learn from cider makers in France. And um, (laughs) we played around with blending with pears and apple cider and we oaked them and hopped them and all kinds of stuff. Wow! I don't know what that is. I don't know. But you recognize that it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's unusual. Um, (laughs) I, I think it has it has something to do i don't know how to not offend some people but i don't have a lot of interest in other in like non-fiction or sorry in fiction sorry i don't okay. have a lot of interest in fiction i um we had some, like i don't know that far you go back but had some traumatic experiences in my in my young in my youth um that made me not really interested in in uh drama never mind f- 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 creatively induced drama that doesn't need to exist so i ended up really uh, uh so all my time reading stuff is it, uh, about topics that interest me and in that you use the example of cider uh i also did similar with mushrooms and uh edible species of plants and all uh, other things that i i now bury myself into right now it's into uh whitetail habitat Um, So just trying to understand as much as I can about a topic is just something that I do with my spare time. It's where I, that's what I read at night. I don't watch TV. People ask me what TV shows I watch because I produce some TV series right now. And uh, I just don't watch any. That's the answer. And I kind (laughs) of never, I really haven't for, I don't know, 20 years. So uh, I don't think people understand how much time they spend doing those other things. And then if I take all those hours and pile them into learning about some subject that interests me, then um, you get to be smarter about it fast. I also have a mm. lot of great friends who are really smart about a lot of smart topics. So I've been learning about mixology for a couple of years, for example, or making cocktails. But that's because I have a, a one of my closest friends, Mel. She's uh, a really super talented mixologist from Ontario. And we just keep folding her into the project. And I keep learning at warp speed and being inspired to learn more. Um, so uh, that that also helps is having uh, having people around you that are also uh, interested in similar similar things. But yeah, but do, yes, you, do I,
0: you ever feel do, like do. You're, uh, do you ever feel like it's a form of cheating when you, <laughs> you leapfrog up the learning curve by leveraging all of these years and years of practice that that somebody one of your peers has developed, whether it's in butchery or mixology or you know understanding native plant species or whatever it might be
1: is it is that just kind of
0: a a hack that is like useful or like
1: um I I don't I don't know I've never felt badly about that because I think there's kind of uh I've always worked or lived in a in a very sharing community-based especially the world of food is amazing as far as community goes. And so it's not hard for someone to go here, let me show you how to do this. There's not a lot of, uh, uh, I don't know, um, retention and, and guarding of, of, yeah. of information and technique. And I also don't think you can leapfrog too far. I've been working with Robert Rogers, who's written 50 some books on plants and fungus and their medi- medicinal uses. And so, yeah, I'm learning that warp speed just even, being in the same vehicle as him but <laughs> but there's only so much i'll be able to learn and i am a generalist um that's part of that's mm, that makes you it's i don't know it's good and bad pros and cons to being a generalist about things and by that i mean i do a lot of things uh i and i don't particularly i don't do one thing and then just spend all my time doing that thing so yeah i would say i would say i've learned uh how to become good at quite a number of things <laughs> yeah
0: Um, and 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 I don't think there's, you don't get extra points by going the slow, hard road of like, got to do everything myself and got to learn, learn by mistake and make every mistake. Sure. We, we learn from our mistakes, obviously, but if you can like, you know, get some critical piece of knowledge or a tip from someone who's like, you know what, I've been doing this for 30 years this is going to help you out. Like, of course, that's what, that's what community is about. Just like you said, so beautifully. So with all of these things that you've self taught yourself in combination with learning in community with um, other people who share your passions, do you have like one learning curve in particular, that's a favorite one or that was particularly difficult that you feel a sense of accomplishment of like mastering and like whether it's something that you're like currently really into and passionate about Ooh, or just you
1: geeked me out with mastering. Cause I almost feel like I'm the, again, the master of none. Um, yeah, that's probably a poor choice of word, but just no, like, I get it getting the... to a
0: point where of, of like comfortable, um, yeah. competence.
1: Yeah. The, 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 that, uh, the easy answer there is, uh, you mentioned it earlier, getting into sea kayaking. Um, I grew up on the prairies and, uh, the ocean was always this, gigantic uh formidable threatening beast of a of a eco region that i was exposed to a fair bit because we had relatives out that way but i had never been comfortable navigating my way in that world and uh two years ago took a sea kayak guide instructor uh sorry no uh, um overnight expedition uh guide a uh, designation which uh was weird because I hadn't really spent a lot of time or, um, hadn't spent a lot of time doing that kind of, uh, formal training in the outdoors, kind of learned, like you said, a lot of stuff on my own and didn't grow up in a family where like going to get that kind of training was much of a thing. Um, so that was a big leap for me. Um, I was in a class with a whole bunch of, uh, young, much younger people, uh, doing some really hard stuff. Like, uh, the nate like people uh having to have somebody in a kayak your teammate flip upside down and stay upside down inverted in their kayak and you had to be able to paddle up to them and flip their kayak upright with them in it in a certain number of seconds or whatever before they couldn't breathe anymore kind of thing and so oh, training like that's scary like on the ocean and then we had to also train in class three water so we were off the coast of uh tofino and in swell and that kind of stuff so Anyway, that just that was one of the recent learning curves that was a heavy one, um, both on gear and on education about weather and education about all oh man, everything related to the ocean. Yeah.
0: Oh yeah, and just physical fitness and everything would yeah. sounds, yeah. sounds very demanding.
1: Yeah. Uh yeah, sea kayak guides are under underpaid and underappreciated. That's that was my conclusion. <laughs> um and but what it trained me to do was I really wanted to expand. We had done some episodes of From the Wild on the Ocean, but I really wanted to be able to competently and responsibly take uh, some of my team, who would get who were keen to get some training to get out uh, onto the ocean and spend more time there. Because much like the land or any, we talked about the bottomless pit of topics. Um, the ocean is is a bottomless ocean of topics. There's just so many fascinating things that uh, relate to. Food, it's also an interesting place for me because um wild food on in land-based environments is actually rather unfamiliar. on the land it's kind of agriculture's king, and wild food is kind of like eating moose meat or a carib or I don't know, a pronghorn would be weird. Whereas you go to the ocean and people are intimately familiar with and restaurants are full of all the prawns and crab and seaweeds. All the wild
0: and, creatures, yeah. Yeah,
1: all the wild creatures are just what you eat on the yeah. ocean. And so it's just there's this weird connect on the ocean that, um, that made it uh, a fun place to play when you're in the world I live in.
0: Yeah. But still so much about the ocean that, I mean, all of us and even experts, but for sure, the general public just are completely unaware of how, how things work and what lives there and, oh yeah. And all the intricacies of these ecosystems. So, um, you, something you said made me curious about another one of your learning curves, uh, which is filmmaking. So, over the years of, of filming from the wild, I'm curious how, like you, you, t- you talked about how creative people are just wired to do creative things and to be creative and to to create. And so filmmaking and storytelling obviously is an extension of that for you. Um, how did you learn to like, it's one thing to capture a beautiful image of, you know, a plant that you find fascinating or to set up a camera and get some some wildlife shots but then it's taking it to another level to be able to craft those elements or those ingredients into the structure of a story that's going to hold someone's interest for 20 or 30 minutes and Mm -hmm. take them on a, take them on a journey. Right. Mm -hmm. So like when I watch your show, like you're, you're taking me along with you to some of these wild places Mm -hmm. Um, and not just like experiencing the hunt, but going deeper than that and reflecting on the meaning of things, reflecting on life as a human being, reflecting on, and this is what made me say, think to myself, I got to get Kevin on the podcast to pick his brain a little bit and explore together just in conversation. Like we're doing what that is about, like what that means for you. So there's a lot to unpack just in that uh, in that one question, I guess, but to start us off, how did you learn to take these beautiful images that you were pointing your camera at and craft them into these episodes that became the show?
1: From the wild was born really early in my career, so it's hard to watch some of the earlier seasons for me. <laughs> um but I can relate I think, to that. I think I got lucky on. Um, well, I got lucky on. I already I already understood sound, so I didn't have to go through that learning curve, um, and I got a bit lucky on being able to shoot images that people thought were lovely. Okay, cool. What I sucked at early on actually was, um, storytelling, if anything. So I was really lucky to have some good people, uh, on my team that were, um, that were just compelling to listen to and that were better storytellers than I, than I was. I would say that's really changed a lot in, in 10 years. Uh, to the point where um, that story piece is like really super critical and tying all the loose threads that kind of get discovered and then woven back together in the show. Um, I'm doing a far better job now of of kind of weaving that.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: but it, but that took a lot of years to figure out. As you know, storytelling is not an, like it's not an easy thing to be good at, to be really good at. And I wouldn't say I'm only I'm only just getting there. Um, so I got, I guess to, I guess to answer your question, I got really lucky at, uh, at the visual stuff. Um, and then, um, huh, here's a hack, choose a bunch of beautiful places to film and then go do that. And so from the wild was based on like, I want some like wintry ice stuff, some boreal forest gold, some green spring things, some badlands. If I can create that kind of visual diversity Ooh. in, make it into the format of the show, then Then people will like it without knowing why, and I learned that in music, uh, producing songs. Like people don't think about what decibel level the hi hats at, or what the frequency notch is that you knocked out the lows or the mids on it. Like they don't think about any of that stuff you do when you're engineering. But your job as a musician is to create a hole that someone can listen to and go, I like that. And so that's kind of the it's kind of the same thing is just uh, trying to create a, a whole package in a season of the of the show that people could watch it and go, hmm, interesting. And over the years, we started to get into the philosophy of food way better, uh, in a way better fashion, um, start to dig into those chops. And I think season two, three, we kind of really dug into that more uh, and have continued to. And that's really where I think the series uh, diverges from uh, almost everything that was on Well that's on the market even still is this uh we're, we're like the soft side of the hunting and fishing and foraging space uh mm. i would especially the hunting and fishing space which tends to be very um trophy egocentric yeah uh has a little, been historically.
0: A little bit more macho
1: yeah yeah and um uh and very conformist which is really interesting you would you wouldn't think but uh and then we're just like the the weirdos and i've accepted that and i'm proud of that that we're just we're the people who are talking about death and talking about uh you know ethical killing of things and uh issues around uh animal abuse and fly fishing uh, weird issues like that people don't think about like the militarization of hunting with all of the kind of camo and, and and that culture that's been transplanted from my grandfather's day who wore red plaid to nowadays it looks like there's an army hunting the white-tailed deer in the united states that's an unpopular opinion and i have plenty of those and we do we do <laughs> bring them up because it's it's um i don't know just critical thinking is is fun when you like to think uh, a lot and. It also is something, I mean, in food, you're kind of always asking yourself, like, is the acidity balanced? Is there enough salt in here? Could I garnish it better? Could I have plated this differently? So you're kind of always doing that critical thinking constantly. And so when you just apply even a little bit of thought to your the activity that you're doing outside, whether it's cutting a tree down or a picking a plant or a mushroom or killing a something, an animal or a fish, um, it's not hard to ask one or two questions mm. that put you down a really troublesome rabbit hole that conflicts with a lot of where everyone else is at. So we've yeah. always been willing to push that. The other thing we were always willing to show was the gory bits. Um, uh, I grew up watching the food network when it was kind of in its day And there was, there was kind of this like farm, farm to table idea. Cool. It was already a present, but, but it would be like, we visited the pig at the farm and then look, here's me cooking in my kitchen. And there was, always this gap of like yeah but that pig died who killed the pig did you even (laughs) mention that part and then how do you even butcher it and how is anyone supposed to build any of these skills or how are we supposed to connect to food if we're not connected to any of that part of the process so right early on we were really willing to not even show much of the hunt and it's just like well there's a deer down and here's how you can gut it and it's not a how-to show but we'd show people the gutting of the animal and the butchery of the animal and made that a really integral part of the show. Mm-hmm. So I think that was an early point of differentiation too.
0: It's so interesting. I just, this morning in kind of prepping for today, I watched the last episode of season eight where you were um, reflecting on why is it so commonplace that it's just assumed that you need to move. Like, so you, you shoot a deer. Uh, it was a pronghorn in this in this yep. case. And the convent, the standard convention is to move the entire animal to a different location to cut it into pieces, to to dress it. And instead you, and you, there's beautiful uh, shots of you field dressing this pronghorn, where instead you just right on the spot, right where it went down, um, broke it into pieces, and then found some structure that you could hang some of those pieces from so they could dry and kind of prepare things, and then move it back to camp in in yep. pieces. So, I, I felt like I was sort of watching not only the like how to or like the practical what you were doing, but also this other layer above it of like the way Kevin's brain is working <laughs> as he's challenging some of these assumptions or challenging some of the standard thinking. And I think that there's something about you, you, you described yourself not long ago as a generalist. And I think there's something about being a generalist in combination with being curious and being mm-hmm. introspective that produces a human being with a mind that is willing to say well hang on a second yep maybe this isn't the best way to always do it but when you really specialize in something and you just do that thing all the time i think maybe i'm wrong but maybe i think sometimes we as humans have a tendency to then fall into a pattern of like well I don't know why I do that. It's just the way we've always done it.
1: That's the way we've always done it. Yeah.
0: So whether that's in like religion, like, well, we can't, you know, challenge the religious traditions that we have. That's the way we've always done it. Well, why do you pray this, this prayer? Why do you go through this um, spiritual practice at this time of the year? Well, I guess I've never stopped to think about it. it. And you could apply that to agriculture. You could apply it to any of our human systems. Right. Yeah. So I have a great appreciation for that, that being a generalist, and being curious opens you up to looking at things from new perspectives.
1: Yeah, I can't disagree with any of it. I'm really grateful, actually, if I had to credit somebody with that. I would say I grew up in a time when the education system was really pushing critical thinking. It literally mm-hmm. was like my junior high teachers who were encouraging that in their students. And I, re- I remember that and obviously took something away.
0: Wow. They really so, stuck
1: with you, eh? Hey? Yeah, I guess so.
0: Huh. Um, you also just a, a minute ago, were saying something about, you know, questioning, uh, asking yourself, like, could I have done this differently? Could I have plated that dish differently? Uh, another thing that's really clear in your creative work is that you have a deep appreciation for the beauty of food. So whether, I, I don't know, I, I look at some of your, your uh, your video work, and here you are out in the wilderness, right? Like you're out in the mountains, you're in the bush, you're out on the prairies and the grasslands, or you're out on the coast. You're in these really wild places, and yet you've got like a plate that isn't just like you know, it's not just an ordinary whatever. It's like this fine china, or you've got like this glassware, and you've got this beautiful carving knife. Like, they, I, would I be right in saying that that beauty in, in the Everything from this like pieces of furniture around you to like making your camp beautiful to like having a really nice knife or axe or like um, appreciating the beauty of this of the ice and the snow on the trees to that Mm -hmm. those ingredients and the way you bring them together on the plate. What is what is it about that for you that is meaningful to not just like, oh, that tasted great, but like it was a feast for my eyes first, like and to to share that in your in your work.
1: On the natural environment stuff, um, that's become a, a basic construct of the show. And it it's born, I think, in trying to make other people fall in love with those spaces like I have. Mm-hmm. So I think it's easy to look at the boreal forest and drive to Fort McMurray from Edmonton, for example. And it's this uniform stand of conifer trees. But really, if you look closer in September, October, there's like the yellow tamarack's that are screaming at you and there's uh there's all kinds of layers of beautiful things that happen in there that um i don't think people spend a lot of time looking to appreciate and ultimately a uh, uh, a lot of my interest in trying to connect people to the outdoors uh is born in in kind of the horror of seeing how we manage our outdoor spaces or the wild spaces that are uh just kind of full stop uh whether it's the oceans or the boreal forest or whatever. So it's, it's like a conservation effort to try and, um, (laughs) make people see it differently and care enough to maybe preserve it Mm. on the food side. Um, I don't know. I, I I think it's maybe part of the same, um, other than just the inherent, like creative bent to want to make, make it nice. Uh, I, I really think it's again about convince, trying to convince people that uh white tailed deer isn't necessarily just like garlic sausage, you know, like it, you can turn it into a tartar in the mm-hmm. bush or you can make uh, something be- like we just cooked a a beautiful uh, Cuban dish in the field uh, the, out of a neck muscle of this neck muscle of a white tailed deer. Um so I think that's part of it too. Is it's it's been an uphill battle trying to convince uh, people that one, uh, there's value in the spaces that are not created by man in on this planet. There's uh, and then two that um, the foods that are there aren't weird or other. They're just actually uh, they're actually amazing. And to try and convince people of that, I guess part of it is like show it. Uh, and then make it look nice, make it look like something they could relate to. Um, so I think that's part of it. Now, when it, you boil it right down into the, like the other details of why do I like, I literally hauled in nice glassware in my sea kayak to make a margarita for my buddy on the on the <laughs> ocean, and and I think that's why. That's the why. It's because I could have served it to him and he would have been happy to drink it out of a little enamelware mug that you might normally travel with. But if you take that like one extra step. Of like, I'm going to try and make that um, just a little bit nicer, make that experience just a little bit nicer. Um, when you can do that uh, in food, we eat and drink so often that it, it it's it's super cumulative and then makes your whole experience way more rich. So I really feel like we've kind of spent an entire era dumbing down field food um to the point where some people assume they have to buy freeze-dried packets from a local sporting goods store to add boiled water to and that's how we should eat when we're in the mountains um you don't have to you could totally i I brought antique silverware up into the mountains so (laughs) that's that might sound pretentious and snobby sometimes it's just a function of having chopsticks or like the right tool for the job and less a function of of kind of i guess buying the buying the stuff that uh an industry wants to sell to you and again that circles i guess back to that critical thinking of would i rather have a a spork while i'm eating sashimi on the ocean or would i rather have a pair of nice chopsticks or and actually what we did do is fashion some chopsticks and out of some cedar nearby so um, we kind of do both that intersection of like really beautiful antique whatever or um that that I wouldn't encourage people to think that they, that I'm uh, we're kind of anti spending money on gear. Like trying to encourage people to approach wild activities or the activities outdoors without thinking I can't do that because I have to spend four thousand bucks before I even have the thing to the kayak and the da 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 da. da. There's yeah. lots of activities you can do that cost almost nothing uh, to go outside and engage with the outdoors. So. Um, so yeah, we, because we've had no sponsors from the beginning, it's been easy to push back on that and go, you don't need any of this stuff. Like you, can just, <laughs> you're you not selling something. all of our, all of our fancy gear, like comes from value village, go there and get some nice glassware and some nice silverware and it costs you 10 bucks and you're carried
0: yeah. out. So it really doesn't take much other than intentionality to really elevate the experience.
1: Amen. That's and exactly it's,
0: and, and it's not a, about like, well, we're doing this for the camera because we're producing like a look or a show or a, like a a style, a visual style. Like, I, is that what you're saying here too? Is that like this is just also for your own enjoyment? Like when you're going out and you're camping or something, oh, yeah. and you're with your kids or your friends, you're and you're not filming and you're not capturing, you know, the close-up shot of the plated dish. Like it's still yeah. just worth it to heighten the enjoyment level with these simple little touches
1: yes one of the big reasons is because a lot of these adventures that we go on in life uh in the outdoors are pretty important memories to us uh we only get to make so many of those in our lifetime so if i'm gonna go spend a week with a friend of mine in the bush um do i want to eat the most basic of things that i could figure out and can soups and stuff like i could or we could spend very little effort to make it considerably more pleasurable to be out uh, outside so that our i don't know it's, it's kind of like the the time in my life would i'd want to go through the most effort to mm. make sure things are nicer or lovely rather than you know just a normal day-to-day at home kind of thing so oh, for sure i feel like those experiences are special and they, it doesn't take much in the way of trying to improve um kind of the making something like you said more beautiful making it um making it just a nicer overall experience it's, it's just not that hard and it's been worth every effort uh there's another layer like we sleep under bear furs for real we just did um that's born in both like the aesthetic sure it looks cool but we actually that's a sustainability piece for us like when you harvest a bear for food it also has a fur and you can throw that fur out or you can actually use it so We've tried to do that overlap too, of using um, antler pieces from from deer to build pieces of equipment to um, to that kind of thing. Trying to use more and more and more of an animal when we can.
0: Does it does it strike you as disturbing that some of these things that you're doing that might be looked at as like weird or like kind of out there are? It's the exact opposite of like some new way of doing things. Like if anything, you're, you're going back to like, um, I think of the example of butchery and like using parts of the animal or using the fat for things or using the hide. Like you just said, those are ancient ideas, like really ancient, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But, but we've gone so far down this weird path in our society that now people like you who go out there and are doing weird culinary things with liver and uh and different organ meats are looked at as as weird and
1: i know it's actually frustrating and it's uh it's frustrating because it's uh sometimes cooking with we just as you mentioned that episode in the grasslands mel was cooking with um goose offal so we made a liver pate in the field and that would be seen as like i don't know like adventurous yeah one it's garbage in that in that space for sure waterfowl is breasted out and the rest is pitched typically and even if you keep the legs that's about it so uh, we're some of the only people we know keeping the the odd bits but like the liver and the gizzards and things from time to time but um but the fact that that is avant-garde is actually really sad um and and a lot of what I do, it's a little bit frustra- frustrating. That it's all—it's almost like um, it's almost like we've become too like a uh, uh, a caricature. Like it's almost it seems too designed now, which is hilarious. It's hard to peel back once you've once you are living with a wood stove in a tent for a week. You kind of just and spend ten years doing it you have to uh i don't know have certain pieces of kit and have it looks very hipster we look like we're, a, we're like a wannabe hipster act when in yeah. fact it's like we're actually we actually need that axe like i don't just own the axe we actually use it every day to split wood because if you don't fill that wood rack tonight you're gonna freeze your pop <laughs> so yeah that that part's a little a little frustrating
0: i i just saw a, a reel on instagram um the other day where it was kind of making fun of that that stereotypical image of like hipster image and this guy's wearing like a carhartt vest and he's like oh you noticed my carhartt vest uh yeah i do a lot of stuff outdoors have you ever tried foraging through the forest to retrieve your your uh, golf disc that's um, right <laughs> without yeah. wearing the proper protective clothing <laughs> but yeah i get what you're saying completely." Um, so Kevin, I know we're, we're getting on in in time here a little bit, and I'd I'd really love to focus the lens a bit of the, on this conversation around, like you talked about not being afraid to address, uh, the death part of the field to plate or farm to plate journey of our food. Um, when you give that plant or animal and, and give when you give the proper amount of honoring or respect to this living thing that is now feeding your body, what does that do for you, for you personally, like at the soul level, like what is that all about to, to properly pay respect to what is sacred about that food? Uh,
1: Understanding that, relationship is why i started hunting again as an adult i'd done it as a kid and then quit for about a decade um i wasn't sure i wanted to have a relationship with meat if i couldn't face the that um that uh, the nasty parts like the that loss i guess and then um especially in the gastronomy world where like people especially 10 whatever 15 years ago nose to tail wasn't even trendy so people were eating strip loins and tenderloins and the rest of the beef would be like the farmer wouldn't even know what to do with it, kind of thing because other than grind it and put it in a hamburger and sell it to a different segment of the market but um when when you when you dispatch a thing that is living uh i, I think people the bigger the thing the more the like the bigger the creature the more easily it is for people to understand the gravitas of that and just like to feel it deep in their bones and their brain, um, and then feel compelled to not screw it up. Because if I did that to that thing, then I probably really need to step up here. Mm. Uh, and at some point, um, some people step away from meat when you have to face that, and that's totally understandable. Uh, it was the question that I had in my brain when I started hunting, and uh, for me, it was the opposite. I was like, "Oh wow, that's profound," um, th- to have a different understanding of the sacrifice required to eat f- food. Um, one of my frustrations—I must be a frustrated guy—I've mentioned that word a few times—is I think, I think people talk about um, like if you kill a large or a deer, and they're a pretty little thing. Um, so when and they're big, so that death is difficult to kind of wear for first-time hunters or for for a lot of people. Some people know. Um, but as you shrink that format of creature, so uh, a, f- a fish, for example, uh, I've seen fish literally being taken out of the the ocean or the lake uh, in nets and get dumped into a bin and be shipped away. And, like, we don't even afford them the dispatch of a death. We just kind of put them in a container and go, that's good enough. And then plants the same like even worse. We just have don't even think of them as uh, having a value of their life. And so to me, um, I think there's there's something to be pondered in all of that, and uh, which which really um, led me to f- uh, discussions with my colleagues about or my friends about how you really get involved in the the oneness like how 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 you are play a role in that ecosystem at that moment and how ultimately um, you will do the same like you'll you also will feed the fungus at one point so um, <laughs> it's such a it, creepy thought isn't it? it it takes you down a notch when you I, I think honestly when you can wrap your head around an ecosystem is based on this interconnectivity of all these different species that that feed each other yeah that's both beautiful and amazing and like one ecosystem is functioning properly i should add but um it makes a lot easier to swallow the concept of your own mortality or of death in general as um waste is different there i remember Mm. i remember an animal being shot not the best and there was a piece of the hind quarter we had to leave behind and uh the shooter was really distraught and at the time i had already become pretty zen with the fact that, like hey no that's fine because there are a ton of creatures that are going to be super pumped that you've (laughs) left some nutrients for them like the whiskey jacks are going to be right on it the ravens would be on it there's there's there is no waste stream in in this biological thing when you're here if you remove it and you take it home (laughs) now it's a waste stream now we're transporting it Twice, and it has to be handled by people and there's labor and like you've created a problem for sure in a different kind of construct man-made construct but in a a healthy ecosystem um yeah it's it's this beautiful circular flow uh of nutrients and life that that is really neat to make peace with
0: it's a it's a strange duality when you think about how we are, as human beings, we are a mammal species that is of nature, obviously, even though we refer to nature as though it's this other separate thing that we're not immersed in constantly. Um, but then at the same time, we are also this species that has, um, you know, created these systems that are so, that are such a departure from the way nature. Operates without us, or had operated for millions of years prior to our, yeah. you know, inventions of different things and burning of fossil fuels and creating these things called landfills and super highways and you know microchips and all of these things that never existed before, and so we have kind of forgotten our place in the natural order, and 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 then to the point where we do really struggle with things like our mortality and the reality that we are biological beings that are going to pass on. But all of these other biological beings and systems that we rely on for our sustenance and our food, do you, do you then believe like in as someone who has really grappled with this uh, and especially in your um, return into, to the hunting world, to address your own moral um, questions around taking an animal's life, what have you concluded about all of this? That like, do you do you believe that these plants and animals that you go out and um, and hunt and forage for and prepare into these beautiful dishes, that they that there's like an energy or a soul be- that is left behind or that is transmuted into you? Like, wh- what do you believe about that process of taking that life and putting it into your body and it becomes you. And then one day you will become the earth.
1: Oh boy. I think you just, uh, you just answered the question. I mean, other, I think it's for me that simple that, um, you ending, ending a life sounds awful and is awful. Uh, but is required for us to not die. That was kind of the first kind of major thing to grapple with. Um, so like it's it was gonna be required that uh for me to not die I had to make something die um that en- the energy flow you're talking about is like a whole other ball of wax um that I can't say I can't say. M- add much more to the, what you said other than you become really aware of the interdependence of all the things, uh, out there. And so that the whole idea of, um, of it becomes a non far less of an issue in your, in your head. Um, as far as the soul of, or the energy of nutrients, uh, I guess my brain goes more to science than to the uh, than to the spiritual. The spiritual connection for me, more than the the ingredient that actually the the thing that I put in my mouth, the spiritual aspect of being out there is is more that connectivity to the ecosystem and feeling feeling like part of the system, feeling like part of the planet, feeling like uh, an organism that belongs somewhere mm. like you you serve a function here and um every critter in that space is eating and being nourished by somebody else in the ecosystem mm. which i so guess you, sort sound... of go,
0: you kind of you sort of go to the macro more than the micro hey like yeah yeah I in, the, I in the greater picture
1: yeah i guess so i guess that's yeah i don't honestly uh i don't when when i harvested a grouse the other day um am i I, i'm not other than the cannot how can i ethically kill this thing and then handle it and eat it and prepare it in a way that honors its death and and those components um i'm not really cognizant or or pondering that uh next layer of like where does that where does that energy go um Mm. beyond the boring scientific caloric and nutrient uh flow um but yeah, it goes for me. That connection is is far more uh, on the macro level. I guess that's what I can say.
0: So to really zoom out to the macro, and our place not just in that boreal or grassland or coastal ecosystem and the microhabitats of of each species, but the 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 ultimate macro of our place in the universe. Do you? This is maybe getting a little bit too quantum and and philosophical, but do you think that there's a place that we return to other than to the soil when we pass on, and that that we there's something to us as human beings that is like kind of eternal and and and, and after?
1: That's a heavy question, my friend.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> that's that's what we do here.
1: <laughs> we, yeah, no, I get the, it. We tackle the deep stuff. Hmm. Um. I'm a bit of a pragmatic dude, hence the finance background. uh <laughs> the The way I see, like, I guess that's what motivates me to do a lot of the work I do is, and especially a lot of the outreach, is that um, that energy of me is or whatever that you want to call that will be left behind um via the the creative projects the connecting people to nature and all those other things so there actually is kind of a real functional uh legacy piece there that's um that's a bit more boring than the spiritual side of things um do i feel that uh i my energy or my soul goes elsewhere uh i don't know the answer to that honestly i i I wish i did um i hope so and i i also don't know that there's a finite amount of energy swirling around uh especially because it sure seems like the the globe is full of a whole lot of creatures that have a lot of uh amazing lives and i i would say that um one thing that happened this week uh I was doing a Euro mount on the whitetail buck that we'd shot, which means I was taking its head apart and and, um, and boiling it and processing it. And then part of that process is taking the brain out. And it seemed, we were I was observing it with one of my children, and the discussion started, like, how is it even possible that so many creatures on this planet, like, function and think and feel and do all these things we do on this planet with a pile of fatty mush in our skull like how does that even how is that even possible
0: how it's does that ever happen?
1: yeah it doesn't make any sense at all
0: no it would make way more sense if earth was just another rock hurtling through space and spinning on its own axis and maybe it had some some trees and and tidal waves splashing on the shores but but nothing really complex going on like you know people trying to teach their teenage kids algebra like that's just yeah how do you wrap your head around the fact that we're even here is like, you get deep questions like, like these from your kids. And, you know, I am sure you can really, I just feel stumped by like, I, I, I personally feel like if, (laughs) if you find yourself in a a religious institution or, or structure or system that has a neat and tidy, simple answer for some of these questions, you should maybe take another look
1: Because
0: Mm. that's concerning to me, or like, that's a red flag. If if there's like these just really simple, neat and tidy answers to these big questions. Um, I remember my dad sitting me down when I had some of these, like, really deep philosophical and spiritual questions when I was, you know, young, like five, six, seven years old. And I remember him saying, I'm trying to be okay with the knowledge that I don't, that I just don't know the answers. To, to, to just accept that there are answers about, like, what happens to us after we die? Why are we here in the first place? Like, all these big metaphysical questions that my brain, back to, like, that little squishy organ, mm-hmm. is just not really capable of grasping the complexity of, of the answers to those questions. And, and I just have to be okay with that. Interesting. So I also... also-
1: I also think that we're spending most of our day, day-to-day, tied up by a whole bunch of other things that where it becomes really easy to ignore, whether it's environmental and climate issues or whether it's spiritual uh, connection issues. We just don't really give... We don't, as a society, I think, allocate a lot of time to that in general. I mean, of course, there's people that do fantastic yeah. jobs at all those things, but mm-hmm. it just seems like a, just not a priority space, Um to spend time thinking about those things, talking about those things. Uh, and again, it's why I do what I do for work. Uh, same thing in the world of food. Mm-hmm. People just don't, they want to talk about pork charcuterie still, or again, when there's 2000 or 3000 other species of thing that you could be talking about in the world of food. And I'm mm-hmm. not that I don't like pork charcuterie, but there's just a million other things to talk about that we're, that we're not. And uh yep. So I think I'm dig, I'm poking around and digging around in that space while you're poking around and digging around in your space. And I love it. Uh, I love that. Um, Again, I'm not sure critical thinking is the word, but it's almost like uh, that creative bent of like, it's just like exploring, exploring the potential of, I've described what I do a lot as um, exploring the culinary potential of wild spaces. Although the more I think about the word wild, the more it drives me nuts because it's actually not. Wild, it's just that's just earth, and we've created these like glass (laughs) and concrete things. People, I take people on foraging walks in the city I live in, and and they talk about it as if it's like some some not natural environment. I'm like, this is what do you think we're where where do you think we are? Like it it hails on us and the snow and it's cold and there's native species everywhere. Mm -hmm. We've trampled all over them and squished them and and paved over them, but they're still around. They're still Mm -hmm. hardy enough to be around. So yeah, this whole idea of this. Wild space has been bugging me, but um, <laughs> kudos, kudos to you for poking around the corners and uh, and thinking thinking through <clears throat> thinking it through at a, at a different lay uh, level than most people spend the time doing.
0: Well, I, I appreciate that, and, and same to you, Kevin, for the corners that that you continue to, to poke in and explore. Um, th- this is probably a good place to to kind of wrap it up, and we're getting close to that I think hour mark roughly. Um, I just one visual that I was popped into my head while you were speaking that I thought I'll just share with you is you know regardless of what your each of our personal answers to some of those questions might be about like you know meaning of life, what happens afterwards what what legacy are we leaving behind if I'm picturing you like on the coast in your in your sea kayak and if if you are that or that is hitting the water and leaving a ripple, like maybe it doesn't matter whether. That ore is going to, you know, it literally be taken to some other plane afterwards. But if you th- picture those ripples continuing on and that energy spreading out into the world and living on and and impacting other things and other people, um, that never ends. Like right, it's it's like this never-ending domino circuit of things. Emanating out from the work you're doing, from the life you're living, from the intentionality that you're bringing to your, your your choices in this finite time that you're here, and it's it's there's a beauty in that, regardless of what you think happens after the fact.
1: I agree. It's kind of a no lose situation. If you're mm. happy with everything that you've done, that <laughs> the impacts yeah. you've made here, and something, and there's there's extra layers after death. Amazing. And if there's not, then you're good too. So All the
0: more um, urgency and importance to like really feel good about the way we're living our lives and to be intentional about it.
1: Absolutely. And I feel lucky to work in an industry where people uh, communicate that to you. As a creator of a show, we get comments all the time about how we've impacted people's lives. And uh, by doing a bunch of outreach work through the year, teaching, um, it's become very clear how... How much of an impact that has so it, it feels great to be in an environment where you i don't have to question those ripples like or wonder i hope i am i hope i'm making a difference mm, it's echoing um, back yeah i, I already know i am because I, I get told that by people who uh give me direct feedback uh regularly so it's it's been really rewarding for that reason too you can do a lot of jobs and, and make money that's cool um but it, i feel really lucky to be, to be able to do a job that i I know makes that impact and mm. uh, yeah, period, I guess.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's so many people doing really thankless work that is important and rewarding and meaningful. Oh, are you correct? But, but yeah. they don't get that positive feedback. I think of, about like, that
1: all the time as a oh, guy who's super privileged to do a lot of fun adventures and go do a lot of neat things. I often will be at a checkout at a at a shop and think, wow, like I, I really appreciate whoever cleaned the bathroom today because that person is not getting thanked they don't get social media messages of like how great they did their job like just literally like you said thankless so i i really really appreciate the people who who do that kind of work i feel uh uh not imposter syndrome guilt for sure about being around the privilege Yeah. yeah yeah no question about
0: it yeah. Well, hey, someone's got to crunch the numbers too, right, Kevin? Like that's right. Worst going to be
1: me. Yeah, <laughs> it's
0: just not going to be you, right? Yeah. Well, Kevin, this has been so much fun, and um, we'll leave it here. But uh, please direct our listeners to where they can check out from the wild and any other cool projects or um, series or anything else that you want to share.
1: Sure. Um... From the wilds, available at uh, fromthewild.ca is the website. And so all of the seasons are linked through that website to Vimeo. And it's all uh, on-demand pay-per-view stuff on, online. Uh, I've, I've got two seasons of a show called Les Strauss Wild Harvest on PBS, uh, Nat Geo Asia, Cottage Life Television. Uh, you can get to that project through um, wild, uh, wildharvestfilms.com. Um, and that's with Les Stroud and Chef Paul Regalci, uh, from, from Rouge in Calgary. Um, and those I would say are my kind of two primary projects and all of our outreach, like teaching lessons, um, day camps and foraging walk stuff is all linked up through the, from the wild website too.
0: Perfect. Awesome. And for anyone who might be interested in hearing more stories, uh, like this one, we've got loads of past episodes of the six ways from Sunday podcast. Those can be found on our website at risingspiritministry.com. Just click on media and then podcast, and they're all there. Um, So thank you again, everyone, for listening. And Kevin, thanks so much for this time. This has been a real treat.
1: Yeah, it was nice to catch up. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. Until next time, everyone, take care and be well.